You're listening to Europe Calling with Terry Whitehead and Vince Tracy. All the news from Spain and the UK. Things you might have missed. So welcome everybody. It's the 16th of March 2022. Okay, so from the studio window, <clears throat> I'm looking out over, uh, well, normally I look out over a mountain, and today the mountain is completely and utterly covered in cloud. Now, fortunately, the cloud is grey, and you might wonder why I say that, but we have been having a, a very sort of orangey, sandy, coloured cloud everywhere. We'll talk to Terry in a second about this. Um, as we get in the car and go across the mountain range down about an hour and hopefully Terry should be down in Alfaz. Terry, warm welcome to you and uh, is your weather any better than the picture I've just painted? Uh, slightly. These I'm colourblind, but uh, it, we've had well, incredibly orange skies for the last couple of days, which is the, the traditional uh, Moroccan storms that blow in across the Mediterranean from Algeria and uh, bring a bit sand. So all our cars change colour over the next few days as uh, the deposits of sand are dropped on it. Not too bad at the moment this year. I mean, normally you're actually sweeping the sand off the drive. But uh, so far, not so bad. But the promised rainstorms haven't actually appeared yet. It's supposed to be rain in the last couple of days, but apparently tomorrow it will start to rain. So if it rains heavy and the uh, and the sand's still in the in the air, then we'll get big deposits of it. But I must admit, Vince, uh, it's actually the orange is, is disappearing as I'm looking out my window. It's been there all day, but it's it's it's, it's moving off somewhere else. I spoke to my um, daughter at lunchtime. She's in in South London, and uh, she she was saying that the the orange the orange rain is landing there now. Yeah, well, uh, I had a call to one of my sons in the Basque country and he was telling me that it was exactly as we've been outlining uh, there. Mm. And, of course, this becomes a little less than usual, doesn't it? Because it, it tends to uh, fringe, probably, Valencia and then, you know, we have a big clean-up and it goes away. We I remember tw twice last year we had this. Um, and I just wondered whether it was because I've had a change of location that maybe it's different, but it would appear this one is a little bit unique to, the, for, for the whole of Spain, isn't it? Yeah, it was Yeah, really quite... I mean, the sky was really heavy with it, and as I said, we normally get heavy deposits of sand, but the rain hasn't come with it. We've had terrific uh, wind uh, gales, um, but it seems, certainly where I'm sitting, it's it's blowing the uh, the the orange of, of God knows where. Well, obviously north and into South London where my daughter lives. <laughs> so, well, would you consider how much sand must be up there? There can't be a lot left in the Sahara by the sound of it. <laughs> okay, well, let's get into what we uh, will discuss from Europe and uh, the press and what we've picked up. And so let's take our first topic.
Okay, so um, as you'd expect, uh, trying to put together a, a half decent podcast, giving you the news that's important and yet not sort of giving you everything that you'll read anyway. I do look around for as many different stories as possible. And for example, we have a, uh, a company producing Euro Weekly News. Uh, news and views since 1998. Uh, they've gone online um, and been online for uh, quite a while now. And I'll give you their sort of, um, should we say, this week's priorities. Now, we start off with Dino's in, in the Sand. <clears throat> uh, it's a new sand festival. And then watch tsunami advisory warning triggered... And then that's about a, a tsunami in uh, Japan. And then fur-free Europe, EU-wide fur produc production ban. Uh, these are all the headline banners. Costa Blanca North, new reception centres for Ukrainian refugees. OK, that's the first mention we get of what reality there is at the moment. Costa del Sol, we look at every year. Residents look forward to Fuengirola. OK, as Spain... Uh, in a general uh, banner, Ukrainian refugees driving license validity. OK, and then finally, UK news friendly homeless man lay dead for weeks. Now, you know, I, 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 it's getting the balance right. And this is where I'll ask Terry to give me his opinion in a minute, because that would appear as if there's nothing going on more important in the world than what I've just read. Um, unless, yeah. you, you know, I mean, what what do you think about what I've just given you as, as those well, bits of news? It's funny, funny you should mention that. Uh, I've been receiving the, the Eurowitty news uh, on my phone um, for years. Uh, it gets annoying a little bit sometimes, the way that it's got set up. But they've been, been flashing these banners across for, for about a week, 10 days, on a countdown message to their new Eurowitty news. Well, it's it's finally been changed, and I clicked on it two days ago, and I couldn't open anything up. So I clicked it again yesterday, and nothing was opening up. So I've now I've now deleted the app from my phone. So they've lost me as a customer. Um, so uh, the, the new wonderful uh, uh, Euro Weekly News uh, system doesn't work for me, not from a physical point of view. But then when you mentioned the triviality, um, I've often thought that the, the, the news itself, well, what is it supposed to be? It, it's not Euro Weekly. You think it's week European news, but it's not. It's anything but. It's trivia and British stuff and everything else, whereas uh, we are in Spain. It is a European paper, Euro Weekly news, but it, it's anything but. I, I, I'm deeply saddened that it's gone that way, that it's, it's taken a turn, uh, and I've just well, I've deleted the app now, so I won't be getting any more of it. Okay, um, right. Uh, there's nothing really I can add to that apart from the fact that, as somebody obviously uh, from the radio station used to look in for news, I was looking for anything that keeps us in the picture but doesn't maybe uh, give you things that you've heard all the time. So you know then of course i look at the the british newspapers which of course um it's just horrible to witness the absolute horrible things that are happening as uh, a city like kiev 
which I noticed, yeah. by the way, they've also changed on the news now. I mean, we've, we've always known that as Kiev. No, I know that possibly we should have always called it Kiev. Um, but, you know, you just wonder whether or not it's just some one person that's been and thought, right, I'm going to change this for, for a specific no, reason. No, 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 it's not Vince. Kiev is the Russian pronunciation of the capital of Ukraine. Kiev is the Ukrainian pronunciation of the capital of Ukraine. Right, OK. So Kiev, we were used to Kiev because we were brought up where Ukraine was part of, of the USSR. So uh, all cities were, were named with Russian language names, so Kiev. But in actual fact, uh, it's not changed name, it's the pronunciation. Uh, and now that they... Obviously, we're learning of this now because Ukraine being obviously in the news, but it's Kiev is the is the pronunciation. Uh, it's, it's like uh, London. <clears throat> Spanish call it Londres, but we know it's as London. But they, you know, it, it's it's one of those things. Mm-hmm. So so Kiev, which is you know the chicken Kiev and all the rest of it, people people probably know it more by or for, uh, is the Russian name. Okay. And they they so Kiev is the Ukrainian the correct Ukrainian pronunciation, shall we say. We've been we've been saying it incorrectly, shall we say. Okay. All right, <laughs> then we'll put that one to bed and um, let's find out where we'll go next for you then. Okay, so a Russian journalist who defied Vladimir Putin's crackdown on free speech to denounce his war on Ukraine on live TV has said she fears for her safety but does not plan uh, to leave the country. Marina Ovzianikova, um dubbed the bravest woman on television. Uh, I, I'm reading a little slowly because there's a lot of spelling mistakes in this, by the way. It's, it's, it, it have, I've picked it up from um, one of the Spanish papers and um, basically there's a lot of difficulty in knowing who's written this because of the mistakes anyway. Um, she's extremely concerned after being handed a £210 fine by a Russian court. There's a, a clue as to where the source of this might come from. Um, a mere fraction of the retaliation expected, raising fears that more punishments awaits her. Uh, Arviz Yanikova speaking said that I absolutely don't feel like a hero after the stunt and did it to open people's eyes, including her own mother, who she said had been horm- zombified by state propaganda. The mother of two also revealed she was unsure she would be able to go through with the protest until the last moment and had to bypass several layers of security to get in front of the cameras with her sign denouncing the war. As far as this woman is concerned, this is hooliganism, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said, and he praised Channel One for what he called its quality, object, uh, objective and timely programming. Before her TV career, let's give you a little bit about her, who she was. She was a competitive swimmer who crossed the Volga River in Russia and the Bosphorus Waterway in Turkey. She graduated from the Kuban State University before achieving a master's degree from Russia's Presidential Academy of National Economy and (coughs) Public Administration. Almost 15,000 people have been detained now across Russia during anti-war protests, while media outlets and journalists who deviate from Mr Putin's narrative are being targeted. Okay, um, I gave you the background there for um, specific reasons which might come out as we discuss this. What did you think of all that, uh, Terry? 
what a brave woman. I, I thought, what an incredibly brave woman. Um, the state uh, TV, the state radio, uh, who peddle the, the propaganda, as they always have done, um, are now peddling the lies. I mean, what a crazy thing where it's illegal to call call the action that the Russians are perpetrating in Ukraine as a war. What the hell is it if it's not a war? Uh, it's not allowed to be called a war. Uh, the Russians, <clears throat> the Russian media system is trying to paint the idea to the Russians that uh, the Ukrainians are welcoming the Russian soldiers with open arms. Well, they're not. They're, open, they're, open, they're welcoming with Molotov cocktails in their arms. And it, it, it's a complete lie and a bluff to the public. And, I, and, I, and in this day and age, how the hell can they keep that going? I was been thinking. You know, if 50 years ago, you could still probably get away with it. How do you do it now? With, with social media, with the internet, with uh, ways, even if you stop the internet, there's ways of, of, of using the web to find out information, or shall we say the dark side, not necessarily available to everybody. But this woman has proven that the fact that she could, she could step onto a TV station because she works there uh, and, and deliver this message on a state-controlled program to the nation. That, that's the, the biggest moment, I think, of this war so far, in as much as it's going to turn at all, that's where it's going to turn. Now, immediately I thought, well, that's the end of her. That's going to be, uh, if she's lucky, a, a camping side there or a bullet in the neck. Next thing you know, she's got a couple hundred quid fine and standing on the court steps, making a, 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 still carrying on with her protest. And I've, I can't believe that that's happened. And then I'm thinking, how clever is that by the Russian, by the Russian uh, government? Because it, I was assuming they were going to make a martyr of her. So that way you, you wouldn't hear from her again. She'd be off to Siberia or, or lying in a ditch somewhere, you know. Uh, but no, I've slapped her with a standard fine and slapped her wrists. So I think they've, in, in, that's a, a point for the Russians in as much they're, they're taking the sting out of it. They're not making her a martyr. But the point has got to be now that, that socially uh, recognised people must come out and be brave and do this and get the message across that this is a tissue of lies that the government is spreading. And because they've always got away with this tissue of lies, they assume they're still going to get away with it. And I think it's all going to fall out of bed very, very, very quickly. And when the, when the Russians get to realise that, wait a minute, uh, there were thousands of, of, of their sons and daughters being, you know, in, in the Russian armed, armed forces being, being being killed in the Ukraine. Uh, their sons and daughters have been told to bomb uh, uh, um, public public sites, residential areas. It's not battles between between armies. It's it's, it's one army slaughtering uh, the, the race a race uh, of another country. Civilians. Basically. Civilians, isn't it's it? Exactly, really? yeah. It's, mm. yeah it's, it's genocide. There's no other word for it, but it, it can't be anything else but genocide. Terry, I've, got, know, I've got to I've got to step in here because I couldn't yeah. have put it more eloquently myself until um, I can't remember what point during today I checked with LinkedIn. Now, LinkedIn is a, a social media platform that I know that you're aware of. Um, yeah. Normally, very, very uh, well-educated people, normally a little bit more savvy. And that story that we both immediately, our first uh, reactions were, what a brave woman. Apparently, mm. the, um, the whole thing's a setup. 
And from what was being said on the social media platform is that when the uh, Russian news goes out, it does not go out live. It normally has, I think it was, it was 10 minutes uh, before the, whatever they've recorded goes out as a live bulletin. And this is from a Russian name. Now, again, I'm only telling you what I've seen. Yeah. Um, I, can't, yeah. I can't do any more than that. This is why I told you earlier that my head is spinning. Yeah. Because, you know, you look at these bits of evidence and I'm thinking at the time that I saw it, it looked a little bit genuine. Then when it, this person was saying that she's worked in the Russian media and it doesn't go out live, I'm thinking, well, that does make a bit more sense. Because as that big banner went up and the lady was stood behind the um, announcer, if you think about it, the announcer did not flinch one second away from delivering whatever the news was supposed to be. Normally, yeah. if something's going on behind you, you would get some, you'd get an idea of something going on. Well, I don't know, but my wife brought, my wife brought up the same point, but I disagree completely. The, the announcer is sitting at a desk looking at a screen with the speech that she's, she's giving. She's concentrating on the words in front of the screen. If somebody's standing behind me waving balloons in the air, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know at all. Secondly, I wasn't sure that she was actually in the studio. A lot of these backdrops are, are, are electronic backdrops, a uh, green screen, shall we say. But I, I assumed that she'd found her way onto a green screen that, was being, that, something, that, that something was being projected on behind the newsreader. I didn't think that she was behind the newsreader, no. Well, this because, is becoming more... Because in... for the very reason that she stepped to one side, she realised that holding her, her banner up behind the newsreader was blocking the, the, the message. So she moved to one side. So she can only do that when she's seen it on another screen. She'd have seen on another screen that she stood behind the newsreader, but, the, but what's been emitted is that the banner's blocked. So she steps to one side quite quickly, if you look. So well, I don't think she having... was in the same room. Having worked a lot in a lot more studios and mm. with a bit a bit more sort of awareness of how possibly anybody reading the news feels, um, it would have surprised me that nobody had dived in quickly to get her out of shot. Nobody appeared. There was, you know, th th there's got to be other people on the news floor. And what the people that were saying uh, on LinkedIn was that people with experience in TV and in this type of uh, arena um, saw very quickly that they felt that it was staged. Now, the point I'm going to make now is mm. not whether Terry's right and Vince is wrong or anything like that. I just want to make the point that my head is spinning at the moment because all as I ever wanted to do and ever want to do is present facts to people. Facts that basically in nine times out of ten, I go to a source and I can say that source is good and basically, um, you know, I shouldn't need to worry too much about the information I'm reading out. Now, that would appear to be either a wonderfully contrived uh, moment uh, by the Russian people uh, by the Russian authorities, whoever's in charge of doing it, if indeed it is contrived, mm. or like we've identified, that woman would be one of the most uh, bravest people alive. Having 
also been told by others feeding into this particular feed that this particular woman was a close ally and very, very much a pro-Putin uh, person. Um, the whole thing does seem very, very, very strange. And so I'm looking now to see where, where do I go with this sort of information? And I'm reading to you now. Never has the free press and media been more important than at this pivotal moment in European history. With Vladimir Putin throwing up a smokescreen smoke of fake news to mask his barbaric war on Ukraine. Western journalists risk life and limb daily to tell the real story. Their heroics remind us that freedom of expression is not a given. It must be cherished and fought for. Even here in Britain, the free press is under threat. The revised online safety bill due to be published on Thursday is designed to make social media firms responsible for tackling illegal content and protecting children from online harms. Okay, um, this is now developing away from that incident because neither you nor I can verify one way or the other. So mm -hmm. I really want to highlight why I feel the way I feel at the moment. What I do know is that the second paragraph, which I've just been reading to you from uh, one of the uh, UK papers and talking about the online safety bill, um, I am really now pulling my hair out, trying to think how on earth can anything become safe anymore? Because it's all very well uh, pretending that, you know, when you see things written like that, that this is wonderful. We've now got an online safety bill. I mean, I can remember going back to very, very early in the 1990s, and I can remember um, sitting in a big um, sort of conference room, and there was a guy there explaining uh, that we didn't need to worry about viruses coming in our computers. Uh, this guy was telling us that um, it would never happen. There'd always be um, things that would be able to stop it as long as we bought certain products and everything else. The, the whole point is, really, um, that was one thing. And then I remember when I started doing all my, uh, my supply teaching in the primary schools, listening to Tony Blair telling everybody that everybody's child has got to sit in front of a television screen and learn how to use the internet. I remember saying, and being not exactly the most popular for saying it, that I, I can see dangers, because certainly at that time, children knew far more about the use of the computer than any of the teachers did. Can there ever be any, on, can there be, ever be any onla online safety, do you think? No, no. I think we've all got to learn to take things with a pinch of salt. And when everyone Googles uh, an answer to something, be it a general question or be it a health matter, uh, what do you read? You read the first things that come up. Um, now, they're, they're up there first because they, they're the most popular answer or be somebody's paid to put the answer up there. So that is the danger of... Uh, of, of recognising where there could be a deceitful, deceitful information to the to the answer to the question you're looking for. Well, that's true of any book. What's the alternative? What we used to do down the library and get a book out uh, and do our research that way, longhand. But but which book do you pick up? Which story do you want want to read? 
Um, so I think it's only by uh, by general mass information that we're all going to come to a conclusion of which is right and which is wrong. And uh, I think the lies are very quickly found out. Uh, the danger with children, of course, is is they're very susceptible to having suggestions implanted into them at an early age, or even the danger, biggest danger, being subliminally. I mean, this, I remember years ago they they were banning certain cartoons because they thought there was sub, subliminal messages there, um, which which could be could be bad for kids to to, to take in, but. Um, but you, you get subliminal messages and all these advertising on TV, etc. Not as um, the real dangerous ones, the little flashes that you don't even see. Well, actually, uh, you're been, right. They've been banned. They have been banned. But, but you're right, Terry, uh, because this is even happening now. I picked up an advert mm. yesterday. Now, as you know, we don't really, in, in adverts at the moment, they're trying it in the UK, certainly on the BBCs. Uh, sorry, no, no adverts on BBC, but but they do it in programmes in on the BBC. But on mm. the ITV now, uh, you'll get an occasional thing like a gay kiss that you never would ever have, but it, but it would be part of an advert. It would be flashed on, and this is the sort of subliminal thing that was going on during the Second World War. So I, mm. you know, I, I I'm very very well aware of all this type of thing. I mean. I mean, for many for many weeks, I've had many people who have, you know, wanted to dispute many of the things that I have been accused of as being a conspiracy theorist. I don't think there's much conspiracy theorism uh, that when you look at, you know, the way that Russia is trying to make sure that nobody, um, you know, escapes from whatever they decide they want the Ukraine to be. Um, now, I also feel there's more communism in the background because you can see little snippets coming into the paper about the only man that can manage to to, to calm down uh, Putin is uh, the, the guy from China. And you see, it's little things like this that I believe you've got to read early enough to see the dangers. And I don't think our leaders seem to be able to do it. I mean, we've had a look at uh, the Euro Weekly News now, I'm asking myself, uh, why not really any mention at all to this? Surely Ukraine's still in Europe. I mean, uh, am I right in thinking that? Um, geographically. So if that is the case, it's the biggest story in Europe. And yet I look at one paper and it hasn't really got anything at all about there. It's got about maybe the the refugees coming here, but nothing in mm. So I'm now thinking, well, hang on, are they part of maybe a bigger picture? Maybe they've been got at as well. I don't know, Terry. I've got to the stage where I'm thinking to myself, I better play a bit more music and find something else because, quite frankly, you know, it, it'll drive you potty if you're not careful. Yeah, but it's, Vince, it's, okay, you and I are, are, are very interested and, 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 and um, very upset uh, about what's happening in the Ukraine and how it's playing out. This is, this is history in, in in live history, not not something in a book or something. One of the many films and books that are going to be made in years to come about what's happening now. This is happening in front of your eyes. It's happening in front of your eyes because it's on the television, and you're watching something broadcast by a company, and you're believing what you are seeing. And we have to assume that the company are sending us images that are truthful. And generally speaking, I do. But I remember following the. Um, the, the the election, the U.S. election, Biden and Trump. And I, and I used to, because my family over there, 
So I'll, later night, I'll be clicking onto uh, CNN and onto Fox, and I'm watching two different stories of history being played out exactly. by two major news suppliers. You know, so which history do you want to pick? This is the danger. This is very much so the danger. But I think in the end, um, I, I have a firm belief that good triumphs over evil. And oh. uh, uh, Putin's ass is going to get bitten savagely very, very shortly. Very, very shortly. Okay. Well, and I think they'll be very canny. I think the world's been very canny <clears throat> how this is being played out. It's, it's, it's awful what's happening to the people of Ukraine. They are being slaughtered. And yes, the the, the, the inverted commas free world uh, is doing nothing about it. But by by doing what they're doing, by hitting the economic system of Russia, they are hitting the bloke between the legs where it hurts. Okay, I'm going to come... That is something you can't control. And the, the big people, the big movers in Russia are being hurt badly. Okay. They will, they will stop this action. Terry, that's where I'm going next. Won't be a second. Okay, so uh, we're, we're looking at the economic side of trying to stop somebody whose actions really defy anybody's sort of logic and, and compassion or anything like that. Putin is alleged, I'm reading, is alleged to be the world's richest person with a hidden fortune of £200 billion. Pounds. Now, obviously, um, I'm only going by what I'm reading, but I'd I, I would like to see an equivalent to see what that's supposed to be. Anyway, as he siphons off up to 50% of every ruble made in Russia by the country's most powerful people. Alexei Navalny has already revealed how he uses a network of lovers, children, KGB cronies, allies from his time at the as the mayor of St. Petersburg, university school buddies and childhood friends to hide his extraordinary wealth how the dissident has been sentenced to almost three years in jail and is facing 12 more years uh, for the trouble. Among his acolytes are his childhood friend's butcher's son, who has an unexplained fortune of $500 million, his cousin's nephew, also with an unexplained $500 million fortune, and his former KGB boss, who is now head of one of Russia's biggest oil companies. But as the National Crime Agency's so-called kleptocracy squad opens its hunt for the Putin assets in the UK, activists claim that one of his three daughters, two legitimate and the other the product of an affair with his cleaner, now worth $100 million, owns a property in a leafy Surrey estate. Um, all this in the papers in the UK today. Leslie Sholey, a Surrey activist with Ukrainian heritage, has said that security has been stepped up around the estate in recent months and claims public footpaths leading to a nearby fort have been blocked for locals, again blaming the Russians living there. She said there have been rumours for years Putin's daughter owns a house there and oligarchs certainly own properties there as they use as what, uh, sorry, bold tolls. Russian money has all the protection UK law can get uh, but residents lose out on their own areas and history. I mean, I find reading that, that we're entering a sort of mythical area where they, if somebody wanted immediately to query those figures, I would imagine it would be very, very hard to uh, get those figures uh, totally and utterly certified. 
Um, I think the the key part of that is that uh, Russian money has all the protection. UK law can get it, but residents lose out on their own areas and history. How has it got to that sort of a situation, do you think? <laughs> it's, what's that five-letter word I always talk about okay. being the answer to everything? Well, no, it can't, no it, can't be the, it can't be the answer to everything, Terry, and no. I'll give you the reason why I say that. Okay. That money, it talks, but it can't do anything, can it, on its own? It's just either paper or coins or stocks. Just... You can set fire to it, you can throw a coin in the air. Okay. But it, what it makes is power. If you've got more money than the other bloke, you've got more power. If you've got more money than your neighbour, you've got more power than him. Because you can buy influence. You can buy things. You can buy businesses. You can... You have the chance to, to redefine the world as you want it, because you've got the power via the money that you've got. But that's... And this is my point about what's happening with Putin, is that by by the by the free world controlling the basically now controlling the economy of, mo of most of Russia, they are seriously throttling the money side of things. Now Putin, firstly, doesn't give a monkeys because he's got more money he's ever going to spend in his life. He can set fire to it every day and he still have more coming in. What Putin wants is power. He's, he's hell-bent on expanding Russia back to the US, the pre-1989 limits from the old, old USSR. And, and Ukraine has always been a thorn in his backside because it's proven that democracy can actually work uh, in, in a Russian state. Uh, so he's desperate to get rid of it. And so he's, he's there on his monopoly board trying to put hotels on different houses Meanwhile, by the free world controlling the economy of, of Russia, very much so, shall we say, controlling it, uh, that, that means the money people are really being throttled. Now, it's the money people that Putin created, uh, but they in turn now, they can turn around and, and, uh, and the puppet can bite the master. To my mind, that's exactly what will happen. That Putin is, will be stopped, has to be stopped, has to be removed, uh, I can't. It's not a case of the populace of Russia that can rise against it. I can't see that happening again. Not now. There's too many, too much in the armed forces. But there's, it's the armed forces that can do this with the push and the backing of the money, of the mullied oligarchs, and then that will stop. The bottom line, I think you'll find now that Putin will, will push very quickly to some sort of peace deal. Don't forget what I said weeks ago. He's after that last third of Russia, of, of Ukraine. He wants the eastern third of Ukraine. He wants his, his line straight down to Crimea uh, and, and to a, a warm water port. Okay. Uh, and he's desperately trying to get Odessa. If he gets Odessa, then Ukraine hasn't got okay, any warm but water port at all. That really isn't answering what I asked you, because I don't think you can give the answer, by the way, but I'd like to think what right. your thoughts are, which is basically right. how did it get to the state in Britain that yeah. the British uh, can give all this protection to Russian money, but you and I, if we have a problem, very often find it very difficult to have any help. So uh, where's this help, where's this protection, do you think, come from? Have you ever heard the, fact, the, the phrase money talks? <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> well, well but governments need money. Political parties need money or they cannot exist. The threats are... Uh, there's a threat now with the, with the Labour opposition, where the, where Unite is threatening to pull away their their financial support of the Labour Party. It means that could cause the collapse of the Labour Party. So this is where money is very important in everything, Vince. 
everything. And whoever's got control of that money or large parts of it will influence yours and mine, everybody else who's listened to this, their lives. So, yes, this, yes there's been millions and billions been plumbed, piled into London as a, as a, as a central financial uh, point in, in the world. Uh, and, and knowingly that a lot of this money has been through corrupt measures, through the Russian government dealing with oligarchs and creating oligarchs to, uh, to, to sell and buy and sell businesses and, and create massive slush funds. And, that, of course, if they want to reinvest that money in the UK, you've got to rub your hands together. Yeah, yeah, bring it on. Bring it. I'll just shut one eye for a minute and bring it on. But what I'm, so what, what, it's a bit what, embarrassing now that they're turning around to, to stop it all happening. What I really want to get to is if, for example, you look at the Abramovich story, yeah. And there was, I remember 10 years at least ago when it was, um, it was told that he made money in very shady ways by working with Putin and it was something to do with Siberia and then he managed to sell, sell great amounts of stocks and uh, based around that made fortune which he allowed to come in and, uh, you know, buy Chelsea Football Club. Now, uh, as far as I'm aware, and, and don't forget that, you know, like a lot of people, I only know so much of this, and that's why it's mm. so confusing. But if you can press a computer button and stop my account and your account, yeah, and you can stop Chelsea football's accounts, yeah, what really is going on? Because basically is surely it's the 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 things that back the currency that really need the protection. Am I right in that? We can look at many different ways. I'm, I'm uh, flabbergasted in what's happened with Chelsea Football Club. Um, the, the fact that uh, they can't sell a ticket. So um, Chelsea fans can't go to the middles of a match as a Chelsea fan. They could go to the middle of the match. The Chelsea middles is, a, is an FA Cup match, isn't it? Yeah. They can go to that match... Uh, as a Middlesbrough fan and get in, but I can't go as a Chelsea fan and get in. It, 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 it's ludicrous, uh, but that's what it ends up as. What it does show is is, is the, the immense power that the government has got, uh, which we all know governments are all powerful, but when I can actually shut down, my God, they're shutting down a football club, you know. Now it's coming, now it's all coming home, home to roost in people's, in people's brains. Wait a minute. They've shut down a football club. They can't do that. Well, they can. And basically, they have. Um, because they've had to. It's embarrassing. You know, but whether Abramovich, Abramovich is... Um, listen, I, 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 I know many millionaires. Uh, I've worked for many. And as all but one have been honest people. All but one. There's only one that's been an honest millionaire and made his money the, the, the way we believe it should be done in books. The bulk of the millionaires I know have made it by standing on the bones of other people, by putting companies out of business, by bankrupting other companies, bankrupting the opposition, uh, falsifying things. Corruption in other names. Like corruption, but corruption all the same. You then, it can then be taken, in possibly, in what Abramovich has been accused of doing, to massive corruption on a bigger scale, but it's still corruption. It's still just bigger numbers, you know, what's happening. And it's so easy to, to create vast amounts of money if you've got a government in tow, which is the case with, with the Russian government. They're, 
they, apparently Abramovich was, was instructed that he could buy an oil company for a knockdown price because they removed all the opposition, put them in jail and the rest of it, other ones that wanted to, to buy it, all the other contenders, not opposition, the contenders that wanted to pitch in to buy the oil company, they removed them physically. Uh, and so he bought, he bought this oil company, Abramovich, apparently, which he then sold back to the Russian government. The Russian government allowed him to buy it to knockdown price. He then sells it back to the Russian government, I think, for 30 times what he paid for it. Now, you've, you've got to think that if you, if you got 30 times his money on that, uh, a large amount of that's going to be dismissed to somebody else's coffers, maybe with the name Mr Putin on it, I don't know. Uh, but so that is the, 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 the incredible amount of corruption going on in Russia. <clears throat> but surely to God, it's going on in every country of the world, okay. maybe, you know, to a minor degree. Terry, hold it right there, because we, we've established now Abramovich, Chelsea, Putin... And I'm reading now, Boris Johnson put on a friendly show with Mohammed bin Salman, with whom he is said to exchange regular WhatsApp as they shook hands in the opulent royal court. Mr Johnson has battled away jibes that he's making compromises with other unpalatable regimes to shore up energy supplies during the standoff with Russia. He's pledged he will raise human rights issues during the discussions, days after the kingdom staged a max execution of 81 criminals. But Labour and some Tory MPs have sounded alarm at the idea of cosying up to the Saudis. Even though families are struggling with soaring pump prices and household bills amid the Ukraine standoff, the encounter will be seen in some quarters as having echoes of Tony Blair's notorious deal in the desert with Colonel Gaddafi in 2004. And incidentally, reading about Gaddafi, I read some of the most amazingly good things about him, which really surprised me because I'd never really had ever seen an artist with so much praise for a man who was doing so much good for his people. But that's another story. <clears throat> Let me just go back to that uh, business with the Saudis, because surely if we're going to apply this to Chelsea, then how can Newcastle United suddenly um, be free of exactly. any problems? Manchester City and countless other clubs. It doesn't. It can't stop there, can it? It can't stop there. But you, you can't criticise Johnson for going to Saudi uh, and talking to, to Bin Salman uh, to try and get an oil deal. He's trying, he, unfortunately, or, or, or fortunately, premiers can do this. I can't do this. I couldn't go, uh, like, to, as representing the UK, uh, uh, to go and see the, the, the head of a, of a country where, where the atrocities uh, happen every Friday afternoon. Uh, and do business with it. I, I, I can't do that. And I'll take my hat off to, to leaders that can do it because they're having to swallow bitterly uh, the bile of, of what that is to get the better deal for their own country. Now, Britain is in desperate need of, of cheap fuel now. Uh, now, the same thing's happened in the, use, in the States, actually, in a minor way. All of a sudden, Venezuela, the pariah of, of, of South America, uh, where, where, where the people are starving, but it's oil-rich, is now doing a deal with the US all of a sudden. Strange bedfellows, Vince, aren't they? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Terry, it's a, a horrible world, and I listen to what you tell me about the money. I try to find as much information as I can around the money. And um, here's another strange one for you from an article that I found in the papers this week. Um, here we go. 
Okay, a little bit of music to change our school of thought as the question is, for many years now, we have known that cancer is not one disease but many diseases and that even within the same patient, the characteristics of tumours may vary. Does this mean we should assume that we're dealing with a great many diseases that need to be tackled separately or is the hope for some kind of unified theory to find common aspects that could simplify cancer treatments? And the answer, this is where the field is going. This is from an expert. On the one hand, we now have the tools to see complexity. And the more we use the tools, we see more levels of complexity. We see lots of differences between each individual cancer patient and even differences between cells with an individual tumour. But now the challenge is to take all this data and look for common denominators. There's no way there's going to be one cure for cancer. But on the other hand, we don't want to be in a situation where we will need a million cures for cancer. We cannot define the common denominators without understanding all the complexity and putting it together and then looking at a particular set of alterations in cancer, what they have in common. There is not going to be one therapy that treats all cancer patients, but defining the right combination of treatments that takes into account the diversity of patients is going to work. So I believe that in the end, we will be able to use a limited number of treatments, but intelligently combining them together. Okay, that's the information from the newspaper. Now, I add in two things. I add in two emails that I get uh, this last couple of days asking me for a donation uh, in uh, Spanish to the cancer, uh, uh, you know, the, the cancer people here in Spain. And Ooh. then I look on the British TV where they're having these very special days for everybody to go out and run for somebody who's been a victim of cancer. Now, in 1980, I think it was 1978, I can't remember the actual year. I remember, no, 82, I do now. It was the first Wirral Marathon. And so I set um, together with a lovely lady called Jane, uh, Jean Gray, who helped me um, organize a team of helpers. Um, I ran the first uh, Wirral Marathon and... Eventually, when we uh, finished that, we collected all the money. We had £2,240 to give to Ken Dodd at a special night when we had another a cancer specialist from Clatterbridge Hospital, which is the, where I started doing my hospital radio. It all links in, really. But, you know, the point I'm making is that in those early days i mean even then we were raising huge huge sums for cancer research i can also remember that you know um we've had e emails and other propositions from people who reckon that a very famous russian neuroscientist or somebody found the cure for cancer and it's been hidden um, yeah, I mean, this has been going on for so long, and yet yeah. we're still sending rockets up to space. We're all talking about these wonderful other things that's going to take over, like robots telling us what's true and what isn't true when we stop using our brains. What's going on in the world of cancer and cancer research from what you can deduct, you know, from that background? Oh, it's a funny thing. I had a little... I thought I had problem with cancer many years ago prostate cancer uh i was told i may have prostate cancer i didn't know what a prostate was i do now uh 
And I remember at the time I was, I was reading the magazine and the chairman of Intel, which the, the, these are the people that make the, the chips inside your computer. So a very influential person, uh, a very intelligent person, had prostate cancer. And he wrote this article in this magazine. I was quite a long article, which I read uh, thoroughly. Uh, and in the, at the end of it, he, he mentioned uh, it got to the point where there was, there was three treatments, three possible treatments for his, his prostate cancer. Uh, he ended up, he said, I'm, I'm elected this one. He said, and time will tell. As far as I know, he's still alive. And I'm talking 30-odd 30, 30 years ago. 30-odd years ago, and he was considerably older than me. So he's either died of old age or he, has, he didn't die of prostate cancer, put it that way. Secondly, while we're talking about prostate cancer, either you or me, Vince, are going to die with it, not necessarily of it. Uh, there are cancers that we are very slow, some are very fast. Uh, we've all got cancer. It's all a case of what's going to trigger it. It's going to lie dormant and never happen, or it's going to get triggered. Now, I've, I've got a, a very, very good friend of mine who, who saved my life once um, by, by giving me the right instructions. Uh, and if you mentioned LinkedIn. He's on LinkedIn. He's called Miguel Bronchud, B-R-O-N-C-H-U-D. Miguel Bronchud. Find him. Click on him. And he, he's out there every day. He is one of the world's foremost uh, uh, leaders on research into oncology. And he's such a beautiful, beautiful man. He really is a lovely guy. Um, he's Spanish, speaks perfect English, speaks French, speaks Italian, I don't know what else. He's extremely intelligent. Uh, he went to Cambridge, he did his study in there. He, he, he's, on a daily basis, he's putting things up <clears throat> about the research into, into oncology and, and how they're getting, they're narrowing it down. It's no longer <clears throat> the big word, the, the big, I know you've been touched by it yourself and your family. It's no longer the big word that can never be mentioned. It's now something like, the, uh, something like there's 80% chance of any of us uh, beating it, put that way. Uh, anyone diagnosed with any sort of cancer is basically an 80%, 8 in 10 will get through it, no problem at all. Uh, whereas the common flu can probably see me off tomorrow, you know. So it, it's, it's being brought back into a, a manageable area, a manageable scope. And it's people like Miguel Bronchud, and, he, and he, he travels to work. The last time I met him, he was going to Libya. I mean, you mentioned Gaddafi. Uh, he was going to Libya, and this was... Uh, at the time when it was kicking off in Libya, uh, the war was on in Libya. Uh, Gaddafi had finally been assassinated, but there was there was more. Uh, the, the intertribal war was on in, in Libya. He said, "I'm going to Libya to to give a talk, uh, an oncology uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, movement over there, uh, research movement." And I said, "Libya? I said, you're mad. I said, yeah, it's important that people um, people in need to know that." But Libya. He said, yeah. So he went into, a, a, at the time, probably the worst war zone you could think of. And, and that's what he does. He, he believes so faithfully in it. Now, he's such a... The answer to many of the questions that you and all of us are asking about that, Miguel Bronchud uh, can, can give you a lot of information. You've got to draw your own, your own opinions on what, what is happening. Yeah. Where he goes around the world um, teaching about what is happening in, in research into oncology and, and beating cancer are many, 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 many different ways. It, it, the battering that cancer is getting in the ring, it's on the ropes, it's in the corner, it's being battered like mad. It's, it's chucking the odd punch out and connecting with people, but it's being battered like mad. Whether it's going to go down for the count, I don't know. But uh, the signs are good at the moment, Vince. 
But Terry, you do hear, and I listen, I'm not saying this that I'm saying it, but you do hear people saying there always has been a cure for cancer. They don't want you to know about it. That's rubbish. I'm a very good friend of mine, he's, he's, he's a director of, uh, of, a, of a pharmaceutical company in the States, a big one. He's a British guy, but he was poached um, to go over there. You, you know his name if I sold it. But he, he, he was poached to go over there. Now, I know he had prostate cancer. He had prostate. Now, if there was ever a point that there were cures that were being hidden, don't you think that the money people in this world, the billionaires and oligarchs, etc., that have got billions and billions, would never die of cancer? It's rubbish, mate. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as something being hidden uh, from us that because the big pharma, the big pharmaceutical companies would, would lose so much money if they couldn't sell us drugs to, to try and beat cancer. It's absolute rot. I do my think... My friend, the old branch would be the first man to tell you that. I, I do think there is enough evidence to suggest now uh, and before now uh, that there are numbers of companies within the pharmaceutical fields who basically have made huge statements about the safety of things that haven't been safe. I mean, obviously, the first one I can talk about is thalidomide, which we've we've had through our lifetime, Terry. You and I both know yeah. of this particular problem because we've probably well, both met people. Well, because there's very little or no research in the old days. Uh, it was considered healthy to smoke a cigarette. It, it, it was, you, you know, you, you were basically going to be unhealthy if you didn't smoke a cigarette. It certainly it was considered healthy to drink beer. People in, in medieval times didn't drink water. They drank beer because beer was boiled water. To, to make it took the flavour. They drank beer. They had different varies and strengths of beer. The really diluted beer for the kids and the stronger stuff for, for granddad. You know. But it, it was drinking beer. So uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a strange world that we live in, Vince. Very, very. Oh, Terry. I mean, I've said a couple of times already, my head is spinning because I'm trying <laughs> to get to the truth. Um, I, I have no no interest in lies at all. I've always wanted to live my life because my dad was as straight as a dime. My dad, my dad was just really one of these guys. If he said mm. it, if I was in trouble, I was in trouble. If uh, anything else he said um, relating to money in particular, if he could make two pound, but he was happy with a pound, that's the way he worked. Let me finish mm. with something that could be shall we say a little nicer because it's very difficult to find yeah. anything nice okay so hopefully this might just be a nicer piece of news the spanish national rugby union side beat portugal 33-28 at the estadio nacional universidad de madrid to ensure that they finish second to Georgia in the combined 2021 and 2022 Rugby Europe Championship, which also doubled as qualifying for the World Cup in France next year. The feat marked a remarkable turnaround for Los Leonors, who started the championship with three defeats, but uh, who have won six straight uh, games after this. They face Georgia next weekend. It's been a long journey and a very tough qualification process. The Spanish head coach Santiago Santos has said the performance of the team was amazing and we're very excited to be going to the Rugby World Cup. Spain has qualified as number two um, in a World Cup pool with defending champions South Africa, Ireland, Scotland, uh, 
um, and the Asia Pacific number one qualifier. In other words, that's that sounds like the the, uh, the pool of death. Its opening yeah. matches were September the 9th, 2023, against Ireland at the Stade de Bordeaux. Eight days later, he'll be there again with his team to face the Springboks uh, before heading to Lille, where they play Scotland on the 30th of September and the Asia-Pacific um, qualifier on October the 8th. Spain's last tournament appearance came at the Rugby World Cup in 1999, where they were also drawn against South Africa and Scotland, as well as Uruguay in Pool A. Um, rugby seems uh, sort of... You don't realise there's a lot of people do like that game here. My son, of course, plays uh, in Denia's team, and, um, you know, I got to know one or two of the uh, Valencian teams whilst I've been here. Um, and, of course, we've got the Villa Hoyosa team that have done very well for us, uh, not far from where you are. So, y- are you still interested in rugby? I don't Yeah, I like it. it it's, it's, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't been to a match for, for, for many a year. But, it, um, it, it's, yes, rugby is big in Spain. Always has been big in Spain. Very popular, which I found... You know, it's a play rugby myself. But I found it quite strange to realise that it was popular. Uh, and in Villa Fiosa, that you mentioned, was a town just down from where we are, or where I am, uh, just the other side of Benidorm. But every year they have the International Rugby Sevens competition where teams from all over the world come and play in this competition in a town 10 kilometres south of Benidorm, uh, which no one's ever heard of. Yeah. But they, they come to it. Uh, it is. It's, it's big. I mean, the university that play. It is big. Nowhere near as big as football, obviously. Nowhere near as big as it is in the UK and France. Uh, but it is. Uh, I can only assume that it's growing in popularity. Yeah. I mean, you get all the prima donnas that you know, that where somebody brushes a shirt and then on the football pitch and they go rolling over, holding their holding their faces, looking for blood, like like a petulant four-year-old child who you can no longer smack. Um, but it it, it's, it doesn't happen in rugby. What also doesn't happen in rugby is, is are you watching football on the telly, the mouthful they give to the refs on the telly get away with it. You say one word against a referee on a rugby pitch, you are off, off, gone. You just, a, a word of dissent, never mind a swear word, you're off the pitch. I've got so to say... I'm looking, I'm looking forward to that happening in football. That would be lovely. Well, I've, I've got to also say that if the VAR in football was anything like the VAR that we see in rugby... I don't think we'd have too many arguments. Terry, I hope that's well, no, lined up. Yeah, <laughs> well, I hope that's lined up uh, everything towards towards the end of a difficult podcast, a uh, difficult week, because our thoughts yeah. and prayers are with all the Ukraine so. and Very anybody so. else suffering. And the, the Russian people who seem to be suffering as well because they've been rounded up and because they don't want a war. Terry, no. it's a strange world we live in, but at least we've had Good a good mate. chat for the last hour. I hope it's a better one next week. All right. Cheers. Thank you, Terry. Cheers, Vince. Good Thank to you. Talk to you. Bye-bye.